welcome to the Wondrous Atlas Creations Destiny Podcast, your guide to all places and plots exalted. My name is Aramithius. And I'm Rals. And today we are discussing the realm, that big colonial power within creation that will get in everyone's way, it, mostly its own for the most part of its history um, in various ways. Before we get into the realm, though, I just wanted to go over some feedback we've had on our Lunars episode. We managed to make a few factual slips that I just wanted to correct while we're in the beginning section so that if you've been listening to that, then you can get everything corrected a bit more. We did mention that um, Chimeras only appeared in, in second edition. They have actually been in all three. Though the names were changed, yeah. as is a recurring issue of third. Well, <laughs> third is trying to make things a bit more mysterious and unknowable and shifty so that players can do what they like, which is a reasonable justification, I think. But makes it hard when your method of quick research is a control F. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. At which point I say, we should stop doing quick research. <laughs> the response to which is obviously, have you seen how many books there are? <laughs> Another thing that is possibly slightly slanderous towards White Wolf, we said that White Wolf gave graduation certificates out when people were buying copies of Exalted at one point for playing an adult game. Uh, this was... What they did was funnier. <laughs> this was a misrepresentation of a particular marketing campaign. It was an advertising campaign called Graduate Your Game, where you sent in a Dungeons & Dragons book and got an Exalted book sent back. Uh, there was no graduation certificate and there was no implication that the other game was for children in that particular marketing campaign. And some more bits and pieces on Lunars. Lunar breeding programs are less of a thing in third edition than we were perhaps making out. The vast majority of Beast Folk are people who have gone through the trials and the people who are their descendants and not the children of Lunas directly as much. With the exception of the Spider King. Yes, there, there are exceptions, but it's not all that common. And one thing that we missed out on Raxi, we were a bit too busy with the shock and awe factor of Raxi being someone who deliberately tries to creep people out. And eats babies. But she is not a teenager in third edition. The slightly more problematic elements of Raxi are steadily being edited out. And that's one of them that we managed to skip over on how we were talking about how it evolved. So apologies for those slips and apologies they're only being addressed now. Our particular episode production cycle means that there will be a lag between episodes getting released and us recording the subsequent ones we will tend to be recording them in blocks so it may take a while for any feedback to clunk through so apologies for any delays there but as and when it does line up with when we're recording they will be addressed so consider it your incentive to keep listening <laughs> absolutely and with that uh, we should give you more of a reason to listen now and we will get on with the realm stuff we are discussing the biggest empire that creation currently has and this is going to be a start to a season discussing the great houses and all of their various holdings on the blessed isle and anything particularly notable outside of it uh, so this is just so you've got an over an overarching understanding of the realm as a system so that when we start referring to satraps and magistrates and dominions and all that it all makes sense to start off with um, we should probably talk about is what the realm is as a brief overview to get things started. Yeah, at at point of the standard game, which as we sort of discussed is Solas, you can pretty much condense the realm to the baddies. It's 
almost omnipresent unless you're playing in some really weird locations. It's always going to have some tendrils somewhere compared to some other sort of some other settings and some other sort of role playing games that will want you to have. Oh, look at all the various warring factions and empires and all like we've got. Exalted keeps it relatively simple. There's one. It's the realm and it's bothering you no matter where you go. Yeah, it is one of those things that's both everywhere and nowhere if you want it to be in. And it does have its own complexities as well. They're very, very good at forming up against the other, which most types of Exalted are. But um, it has its own immense amounts of complexities because it's a really, really good example of of a complex system that's kind of a really good expression of what colonialism is and how empires and colonies work. I've not seen anything else that's so thoroughly concerned with deconstructing the mechanics of empire as the realm is, and it's beautiful. Yeah, the in a nutshell sort of tonal one you can give to tell your players really quickly if they don't need the details on it, is feudal Japan at the scale of China in a colonial mindset. Yes. Um, yeah, I can uh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, if you're trying to kind of deal with the all of the sensitivities about outsiders and foreigners and all of that kind of stuff. I mean also the house system and the bureaucracy and all of the other bits and bobs. It's it is the just like Exalted is and again third wants to try and shift away from it, but Exalted as a whole is a vaguely sort of East Asian inspired everything. This is mm. the 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 platonic empire in an in an east asian mindset <laughs> yeah quite how much you can say it's either japan or china again you can argue that i'd i'd say it's much more china than it is japan uh, even in it, even in its structures and the, cl- the whole kind of clan systems but the nature of how the dynasty behaves is what i yeah. think japan. yeah yeah fair <laughs> enough okay cool uh, the nuts and bolts of it it is it is creation's largest empire in the current setting year it's not the largest empire ever Creation's largest empire was the the solar deliberative or the solar realm. Solar the solar realm, the old realm. And then it's been progressively shrinking ever since. The realm technically is smaller than the Dragon Blooded Shogunate as well. That's because it's basically functioning in a post-apocalyptic setting. Yeah. And as we have discussed in the solar episode as well, the world is quite literally getting smaller. Yes. The realm was basically built out of the ashes of the dragon-blooded shogunate. The empress was a dragon-blooded officer in the shogunate military, and an awful lot of the earliest great houses and structures kind of emerged from shogunate social systems and, and the like. But it also tries to claim a bit more continuity from the first age, more so than the shogunate, mostly through things like the way that the Immaculate Philosophy is emphasised across the realm. And equally, the a lot of their things, whilst mechanically they function a lot closer to how the Shogunate behaved, many of the names of things they do are again taken from the Solar Realm. The fact that they have a deliberative, that wasn't mm. a thing the Shogunate had, that was a thing the First Age Solar Realm had. The realm does try to claim continuity from that rather than the Shogunate, which as we sort of discussed in our Dragon-Blooded episode before, is interesting for a Dragon-Blooded Empire. <laughs> yes, it's... Uh, well, it, it depends on quite what bit of it they want to emphasise as well, because if they're trying to claim Dragon-Blooded hegemony, then you appeal to the Shogunate. If you're trying to appeal to best empire ever, then you need to reach further back. 
than that. The realm itself is ruled from the Blessed Isle. That's the big island in the middle of the Exalted map. It looks small on most of the maps, but it is about the size of Russia and is a lot more habitable. Yeah, we, we say it, we say island, continent is a better descriptor. Yeah, it, it's called the Blessed Isle, but yeah, as you say, continent works so much better. And it rules everywhere else indirectly. It's not the case of the marching into the other territories that they rule across the Inland Sea and just immediately transplanting realm culture wholesale into that place that, they, that they're currently ruling. They have a system for indirect governance, which is called the satrapy system, which is, it sounds like an exotic name, but and it does have a historical parallel. It means something very different. If you think of a yeah. satrap as a viceroy, you're not going far wrong. But don't think of them as a satrap in the historical sense. Yeah, it's, again... Arguably, for those with your historical chops, the best, the best way, the best analog for a uh, for a exalted satrap, even more so than a viceroy, is specifically would be a raja. It would be the way that the British Empire ran India is almost exactly to par with how the realm runs its extremities. Yep, and the realm as a whole is structured in order to make the dragon blooded at the top. It's both founded on and evolved in concert with the Immaculate Doctrines. The way that it puts it forward that the dragon blooded are the most blessed of all creation and so on and so forth is very, very realm. But that's because they didn't get the whole combination of church and state going properly in the Shogunate. You did have precursors to the Immaculate Faith um, in earlier empires, but it's basically there that this is a very, very stratified society. Everything is designed to flow upwards to the dragon-blooded. It's derived from shogunate traditions in terms of its structures, the groups of the great houses that are the kind of the ruling class of the realm are quite closely linked and descended from the idea of the shogunate gens, which are basically, um, are basically the same thing. They're families, they're clans. If you think about... Um, the way that you had a group of ruling families within Rome. So the, your Julii, your Scipii, that's the one. Um, those um, those types of houses are the analogues for the great houses. Yeah. Though I will say, compared to the Shogunate gens, and again, just compared to Lukshai, which I think it's it's slightly controversial, but it's not too controversial to say that Lukshai has retained a lot more Shogunate than the realm has. Oh, yes, that that's... Not under up to debate. The realms, the realms' great houses are a lot more rigid. Yes, and a lot more stuck. Mostly because they do derive centrally from imperial decree. Whereas in Lukshai and presumably the shogunate before it, the gens that actually had authority and power would ebb and flow. Some of them would just disappear off the thing. I mean, Lukshai has the majoris minoris distinction, and equally, Lukshai and again presumably the shogunate was a lot more martially meritocratic you could just if you were decent enough a gens would gobble you up whereas in the realm it's a lot more blood tied a lot more a lot more noble the realm's great houses are a proper aristocracy whereas the shogunate and Lukshai and gens are an extension of the military into social life mm -hmm. yep uh, the realm also has the immaculate order as an explicit state religion it has it as an institution. There are state-sponsored cathedrals. Other faiths will be stamped out. Everyone, or at least the dragon-blooded, are expected to show um, at least nominal adherence to immaculate ritual and practices. 
and so on. And that is one of the ways in which the common folk are sort of kept in check, so to speak. You have both an oppressive realm that is saying you need to pay your taxes, you need to know your place, and then the state religion very explicitly backs that up. As we get to that in the histories, it was designed that way. Yeah. The bigger break from the way the shogunate behaves, though, is that the realm is, and this is one of the first things that you'll encounter when you start reading through anything exalted, the realm is very, very matriarchal, whereas the shogunate, and Lukshai still is, the flip side. Well, no, Lukshai's a bit more egalitarian, but the shogunate presumably was more patriarchal. And this one, of the case of the matriarchy forming, is entirely down to one person. It was not any big idea of religion or governance. It was the empress pretty much decides, yes, I like being in charge, and very much the effect that, well, the effect that having Queen Victoria had on Britain of, you can't really look down at, at the women folk as much when they're the ones giving calling the shots, and this tracks through. And then also their ideology of trying to maximise the number of dragon bloods. You can see the logic in valuing the woman more. Yes, and valuing lineage, because yeah. it's a lot easier to trace a mother. <laughs> basically the great houses and uh, all the dynasty as we said form the ruling class of the realm uh, these are family groups they are descended from the empress in various ways either um from d the uh, they are directly family like namon the head of house namon um is the empress's daughter kathak was a son of the empress as is regara and then you've also got Venif as well, who is the Empress' daughter. All of them will be able to trace back to either a child of the Empress or a consort of the Empress. Tepet is a lovely example of that one because Tepet originally raised his banners against the Empress in the early days of the realm and then got brought on as a consort, which is just a lovely little about face. Not just raised his banner, successfully besieged... Well yeah, successfully got to the point of besieging the Imperial City. He achieved a lot more than pretty much any other military... Yeah, in fact, he's achieved more than any other military incursion against the realm ever. Yes. And once he was defeated, her redness, as, as is the colloquial term... Out of universe, of course, for, uh, for the, for the <laughs> boss lady. It's your colloquial term. <laughs> it's my colloquial term, and I like it. Fair enough. Decided that, you know what? That's pretty impressive. And... <laughs> And decides that, yes, we were trying to kill each other mere moments ago. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, is very, very film, very, very anime, and all of the other sources you want to name it's, along that. It's route. a remarkable power move yes, as well. <laughs> absolutely. But, yes, the Great Houses are the ruling class of the realm. They are not a constituent part of the realm itself. The Empress gets to decide what is and is not a great house. She raises them up, she casts them down. Several great houses have been raised up and have been brought down for various reasons, mostly for trying to kill the Empress or overthrow something or other to do with the Empress. And they lease their domains from the, th from the throne. They lease satrapies from the throne, at least. The way that the Blessed Isle itself is governed is a little different, which we'll get to, but the holdings that the great houses have outside of their ancestral provinces, I think it's probably safest to, to call them that for now, lease all of the territories they control directly from the Empress. And the system was, they paid her money to do that. It wasn't a case of some kind of nominal thing that, no, they, she got actual yeah. money from this, but quite a lot of it. 
which is maintained in the form of the Imperial Tides. Yes. It's just that now we've been using a lot of the present tense with regards to the Empress, which isn't strictly appropriate. Yes. By the time of the kind of year zero, as described in the books, the Empress has been missing for, for about seven years at this point. And so what she put in place is still very, very present, but she herself is not. So some of the things that we'll be describing are the ideal functioning of the realm. And we'll try and bring in bits with, this is how it's supposed to work. This is how it works now without mm. the Empress in place. Yeah. On the matter of the leases, beforehand, the tithes mm-hmm. that was the rent for the satrapies, for use of a better term, would be dynamic. The Empress would decide, oh, I need some of this. These satrapies, give me that. Nowadays, they've become pretty much a fixed tax. And the collectors of it have kind of become independent, not independent, but... You know, independent of the houses, at least. They kind of exist in their own accord. Yes, because they form another part of the realm's bureaucracy. I think we probably should cover the great houses in brief before we go any further. There are ten and a half of them in total. Hmm. (laughs) And I am choosing to describe one of them as half a house. Yeah, the house that is not a house. That's fair enough. But anyway, let's let's run through in alphabetical order. We have House Kethak, who are... Again, slightly controversial to say, but I'd argue that they are your poster child house of all of them, at least as of third edition. They are the foremost military house of the realm. They're very, very martial. Uh, They provide mercenary house legions. We'll discuss the matter of how legions are divvied up a bit later. But they provide their house legions as mercenaries to other non-military houses before the Imperial legions were divvied up. Um, And yeah... They've got the biggest the biggest land army, not the biggest military force. Yes, they were. Um, they are very, very keen on uh, maintaining their military positions. And they are one of the biggest determinants of military strength in, in the realm. The Kafak legions are the best equipped legions. The, the Imperial legions and the House legions are technically separate things. Kafak's House legions were the best. And the only ones that got hired out, generally speaking. The next one's House Sinus. House Sinus are... (laughs) I discussed before in our Lunar episode how I like using the guild as a very specific type of villain. House Sinus are exactly that. (laughs) They are luxury and decadence incarnate. If you have a stereotype about the latter days of Rome, it's House Sinus. Mm-hmm. They run drugs, they run slaves, they run parties. And they also have a monopoly on the slave trade within the realm. Yeah, they are libertines, they are fashionistas, they... Again, there are exceptions, but if you ask the average peasant in the realm about House Sinus, it's the great house most likely to get a sneer of thinking they're better than us, because they are the ones who will flaunt the wealth the most. They run the galas, and by merit of running the galas, I would technically... I'll discuss how I categorise the houses later, but I would technically categorise them as an espionage house. Oh, yes. I would absolutely agree with that one. And, yeah, that's, that's kind of how they behave. They're really, really dodgy. They are one of the houses that's easier to use as an antagonist. Yeah, both in a dragon-blooded game and outside of a dragon-blooded game. They've basically survived by being underestimated Mm. by everyone else. Yeah, they... They are really quite... Really quite dodgy. Next up, we have House Ladal. They were a house of scholars, a house descended from a daughter of the Empress, and they were 
basically um, very much kind of cosseted and trying to keep themselves kind of cooped up to study is kind of the general stereotype of the Ladal. But they are also quite vicious in their pastimes outside of being scholarly. Ladal are um, known as one of the more devout houses out there and adhering to the Immaculate Faith. As part of that, they engage in a shadow crusade, it is called, where they are doing absolutely everything they can to stamp out anathema. So that means anything that the Immaculate Philosophy considers to be bad or wrong on a spiritual level. That means most Celestial Exalted and most other types of Exalted beyond Dragon-Blooded generally. There are exceptions, but they are doing their best to destroy supernatural threats to the realm is their basic shtick. No one questions that they are loyal to the realm. They are loyal to the Immaculate Philosophy um, and everything to do with that. Oh, and I've been saying everyone thinks this and that the Ladal are all this. There are obviously exceptions to these stereotypes as we go through. We're dealing with general house tendencies at this point. None of these houses are monoliths, and so there will be exceptions to the rule in an awful lot of circumstances because the houses are quite big as well. Even for among the number of dragon-blooded, each of them will have, roughly speaking, um, a thousand dragon-blooded each which is a fair amount. Yeah. Next up, we have House Naman, who is basically, at least in the popular imagination, probably just an extension of the house founder. Naman is the eldest surviving daughter of the Empress, and she is doing everything to make herself look like the poster child for what her mother is, was, and make herself look like the most likely successor. She has lived for centuries and sh shows no signs of slowing down. She is one of the best sorceresses in the realm, if not all of creation at this point. Um, and she is doing everything that she can in order to position herself as the heir apparent to her mother's throne. The house itself um, kind of lives in her shadow and is shaped very much by her personality in a way that quite a few of the other houses aren't. Namon had a troubled upbringing, mostly due to her brother wanting desperately to kill her, but not being able to, and also spent a lot of time in the secure housing of the Immaculate Order, who looked after her in the early stages of the brother who was trying to kill her. So she has very much a fondness and a devotion to the Immaculate Order. So the House Naman is very, very tied up with the Order and doing the right thing by the Order, um, doing things like building temples as well. Um, their big thing is construction as well. Yes. E equally, mm -hmm. the... And I know we'll likely get into this more when we actually get to them, but it is kind of important to mention that Naman herself is A, still alive, which is rare for the House Founders, mm -hmm. but B... Pretty much the most powerful living sorceress on creation. Yes. Which is especially impressive when, as you'll recall from the Dragonblooded episode, there's an upper cap on how good dragons can get at it. Mm. There are hints that you can do certain things to get around caps imposed by the type of exalted that you are. And yeah. both the Empress and Naman show signs of being able to break that. Yes, and Namon's connection to the Immaculate Order means that 
she may very well have some uh, special tutors. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. With someone as intelligent as she is, I'd be very surprised if she doesn't know. Yeah. Because she is also supposed to be a genius. Yes. That's kind of less emphasised in recent editions, but then again, how these are presented in, in the editions gets quite a little bit more of a treatment. That Namon gets humanised a lot more in third edition. She takes much more of an active interest in how her younger, more promising dragon-blooded scions work and how they're getting along, what they're doing, how they're fitting into the house, that sort of thing, than she has in previous editions. Whereas before, she was almost a cackling villain sorceress um, in some ways, which is... It's not. It's nice to see everything fleshed out a bit. Yeah, she is... I'm going to make a controversial statement again and annoy all of the Realm fans. She's probably one of the more protagonistic one of the more good guy options for the inevitability of the realm civil war out of the houses she's the one that is most most capable to win and least destructive of those who are most capable to win yeah i think that's reasonable and we'll get to why there's going to be a realm civil war later we haven't quite explained why at this point she is best for the yes for the realm dennis is the best way of phrasing yeah but next up on the house list is Nelens. We were discussing... I just there uh, tried to call Nemon a good guy house, but Nelens is one of the few ones that I will unqualified say are good guys. Yes, absolutely. They're a lovely little house. <laughs> they are. That's why, though, because they are absolutely little. To explain why, Nelens is the only house is named after a mortal. Um, Nelens was a mortal consort of the Scarlet Empress, who fathered Cessus, and basically she, um, the Empress raised up a house in his honour because she liked him so much, uh, which is mm. an interesting thing. I say for, um, fathered Cessus. Um, also in first edition, he also fathered Ladal. I've not seen any mention of that in third as yet. Yeah. So that may be I, a change. Unless they've said it's explicitly not happening, we can treat it as though it did. Yeah, fair enough. But House Nellens, because they are based around a mortal rather than a dragon-blooded, they are also quite often going to have less dragon-blooded within their ranks. Uh, the stereotype that gets bandied about the realm and the dynasty is that they're seen as thin-blooded and less worthy than the other houses. They are very, very much the underdogs, which is why they're so likeable. Yeah, and House Cessus especially has a beef with them because... That was our dad. Um, Basically. But the the thing about House Nellens, we did describe them as a little house. That's technically, that's true in terms of power and arguably in terms of wealth. But in terms of sheer number of bodies, Nellens is one of the biggest. It's just that they're not the biggest in terms of dragons. They incorporate their patricians a lot more directly into the house, which also upsets the other houses. A patrician is a non-dragon-blooded noble family. Um, yep. They give the name to loads and loads of patrician houses, because I do recall reading in, definitely in some second edition books, and I'm pretty sure third does it as well, but don't quote me there, on just numbers of bodies per, of the houses proper, that Nellens is really quite high up Yes, in it. and it also means that they are quite a bit more diversified in their interests than the other houses. You've noticed so far that you can pretty easily stereotype the type of worker, so to speak, 
by House Kafak is a soldier, Sinus is a party goer and drug trader, and General Sleaze merchant, Ladal is a scholar, Namon is a builder, and you can't do that with Nellens. They have a very, very broad portfolio of investments and things that they've done, which also means that they are less indebted to House Regara than most other houses. In keeping with the more monotone houses, Regara is the bank of the dynasty. They they issue they issue loans yeah. and do money lending and all sorts. And yeah. most houses are massively indebted to them. Nellens is a big exception. Nellens does still, however, run a debt. It's just a very small one. Yes, because there is only one house that isn't in debt at all. <laughs> <laughs> and we will get to them at the end because they have the silliest name that puts them at the bottom of all alphabetic lists. Yes. But after Nellens, we have House Peleps, who I've referenced Pirates of the Caribbean several times here. This is a house full of Lord Cutler Beckett, and I will not hear alternative. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they are noble, they are arrogant, and they run the Navy. Used to be all the Navy. Now it's just the military Navy. And yeah. All of the stereotypes that you can imagine from Imperial Naval family, they're all pretty much true. Right down to the fact that their house colours are blue. (laughs) Yeah, it's... Oh, I mean, Exalted is meant to be, or at least draws a lot of its inspiration from kind of Bronze Age and lower tech stuff. House Peleps, you leap straight into the Age of Sail with your your imagery, (laughs) basically, which is really, really weird. (laughs) But as much as all the stereotypes about being stuck up and all the rest of it are quite possibly true. They do have a huge superiority complex. Um, They're also seen as kind of swashbuckling adventurers and that sort of thing. There's a whole kind of cottage industry of various stereotypes to do with um, with some of the houses. And and House Pelops has kind of one of the more romantic images that in the sense of, wouldn't it be wonderful to go on an adventure with a Pelops admiral and just have her sweep you off your feet and... All the rest of it. They are all big flappy coats and tricords. Yeah. Pelops are amazing. They're also one of the frontrunner houses for taking over. Uh, yes. Because I I qualified earlier when we were talking about Cathak that House Cathak has the largest land army, but not the largest military force. Largest military force goes to Pelops. Yes. And no one really knows how large it is as well, because you've got <laughs> um, large areas of creation that aren't that well mapped because they're small, tiny islands that you can only really get to by sea. And as much as House Pellets isn't the only seafaring house, it is the seafaring house that has the most experience at being seafarers and has had the longest time to build up that power base. It hasn't had much reason to within Exalted um, history, but um, it will have those outposts where other houses don't. Next up on the big list, then, we have House Ragara. We mentioned them briefly earlier. They control the Imperial Bank. They control the money lending. Now, when we say big, massive house of bankers running everyone on debt, you're probably already thinking that they're slightly evil. Unfortunately, you're not thinking evil enough. No. (laughs) They encapsulate two extremities of evil. I find it very hard to imagine a good Ragara scion. Yeah. Because on the one hand, you've you've got the banking side, who are very much the banality of evil, all of your slightly malicious tax men running everyone into debt, collecting all the money. They're the richest house by far, unsurprisingly. They're Littlefinger. Yeah, they are Littlefinger from Game of Thrones and all. Like, On the other hand, we mentioned this slightly in the Dragonblood episode as well. There's another side to House Ragara. They are, and additions 
change on how much info they give you about this. Third is deliberately very vague. They are occultists, and not in the sanctioned sense, because the realm does allow sorcerers. They're not socially loved, but it sees them as useful and necessary. But Ragara are the much dodgier kind. They are, frankly, your Lovecraftian occultists, if you read the older editions. They're making deals Ooh. with things that they shouldn't. Mm. And working magics that are not proper. Yes, and there is a glorious line in the Realm book that talks about House Ragara looking for something like um, the realm-subduing word, or words to that effect. They're looking for other levers of power that they can get hold of. Mm. And pretty much every mention of these other levers points out that if they use them, they will be social pariahs and treat at the very least, and just everyone will turn on them. Yeah. The other thing to note about House Ragara is they're one of the few houses whose founder is still alive. Old Man Ragara, as, as I choose to call him, is still alive. But also, even more peculiarly, he retired. He now lives in a nice little resort village somewhere, and I'm sure he's doing something absolutely heinous there. But he gave running of the house over to an heir. Yes, um, there is some talk about him possibly stepping back in if necessary, um, but he's handed over day-to-day -day running of the house to Ragara Bonoba, who is just doing things fairly nicely and running over Ragara's affairs. You might be asking how House Ragara got there. As well as being moneylenders, they needed to have money to lend in the first place. They made their fortune initially out of some very, very profitable jade mines on the Blessed Isle. So they made their money in gold, effectively, and then loaned it out. And to carry on the Game of Thrones comparisons, they are both Littlefinger and the Lannisters. This is absolutely kind of your conglomeration of all things evil yeah. in various ways. If you want a villain, I said Sinus are easy to do it with earlier, but if you just want an uncomplicated villain, use a Ragara. It's what they're there for. <laughs> <laughs> Although, alternatively, I would absolutely love to hear if you have any good Ragara concepts. Please do email them to us, wondrousatlas at gmail.com. Oh, yeah. Uh, we would absolutely love to hear how you can make these the good guys in... A campaign either as an npc or as a player character yes you can quite happily play people who are absolutely and utterly and irredeemably evil but make them good that's your challenge for this episode yeah the next on the list then on the topic of evil houses is house cessus <laughs> <laughs> yes just to contradict what i said literally seconds ago also if you want a villain use a house cessus it's what they're there for well i Hmm. It, they're there for a very particular type of game, but yes, in a dragon-blooded game, in a dra no, in a dragon-blooded game, probably use a Ragara. In an outsider's game, probably use a Sassus. Yes. There's there's my there's my caveat. Yes. But how Sassus are the realm's intelligence service? I categorize them with the martial houses. They are your spies, your assassins, um, your saboteurs. They do all of the intelligence needs of the empire. Well. Some of, because the, they have their own organisation and the all-seeing eye is a thing. Yeah, but they they kind of... Lots of House Cessus scions work in the all-seeing eye. Yes. But then also, House Cessus, as best we understand it from third, and especially explicitly in older editions, kind of runs its own intelligence independent of it. Yes. 
Absolutely. And, yeah. Um, and it gets people doing that from a young age. The thing that kind of leapt out at me with the Cessus is that by the time yep. you're sending off your dragon blooded to, to secondary school, they're already expected by their house to be sending reports home on their classmates' activities, who they're attached to, how they work. House Cessus is also, as of third anyway, one of the more powerful houses. Yes. In terms of military force, they actually mm-hmm. have quite a few legions to their name still. The intelligence work and wealth. How Cessus is one of the front runners for taking over, weirdly, if you can think that. Again, there's lots of if for Realm Civil War things, but basically, if How Cessus was motivated to take over, they'd be one of the front runners. Yes. They're also, as you say, one of the bigger military houses, and that's more or less their public image that they are one of the military houses, but they're not quite as good as Kathak. But. A lot of the a lot of the things that they do about espionage and being saboteurs is very much kind of undercover. Fittingly, it's not like they have a public reputation for producing James Bonds; otherwise, no one would trust them. They also have a very very strong aesthetic. Like, mm. of course, the houses are individuals; they don't wear uniforms. But a lot of Cessus's internal ceremonial things give them a much, much stronger aesthetic than others. I say this entirely just because 3rd edition and 2nd edition to a lesser extent, but it's one of the few cases where the style of artwork they've opted for in 3rd edition I think works better, has some lovely artwork of House Cessus meetings and reports where they're all there in the black and red robes with the gold face masks to obscure who they are. (laughs) Yeah, so you can't betray anyone. But that works really nicely. Um, Next up, we have House Tepet who is another military house. Who, who? But they're the good guys. <laughs> you just like underdogs. That's what it is. <laughs> but I like underdogs. I also like Tepper to Java. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We established <laughs> that last episode for anyone with any reasonable doubt on the matter. Tepper is a proud military house that has seen better days. They are descendants, as we noted, of a guy called Tepper who laid siege to the Imperial Palace and they are currently in ruins. They had a proud military tradition for absolutely ages. And then a solar exalted called the Bull of the North happened and they got crushed. They sent the majority of yeah. their legions to subdue this huge threat who was taking over um, a huge bunch of territory in the north of creation. And they lost. There are quite a few insinuations that... They lost because they weren't helped very deliberately by the other houses. And they were set up for defeat, sort yes. of thing. Yeah. Exactly how much, I think, um, depend that varies depending Ragara on the Ragara is directly implicated yes. in this story in every edition. Yeah, it fair changes enough. specifically who they name from edition to edition, and sometimes even within an edition from book to book. But Ragara is always named as <laughs> like the the problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, every, every everyone everyone feels sorry for Tepet while kind of kicking them in the shins and taking their satrapies and um, doing things to undermine them. Um, no, no, no one will speak against House Tepet because no, no, they're 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 a good old house. I mean, you can trust a Tepet. They were, they were heroes of the realm, sort of thing. Yeah, while doing absolutely nothing to help them materially. Interestingly, though, there is one. I won't call it a flaw, I don't see it as a problem, but other houses might, and it's an angle of attack that some of them have used. House Tepet, for pretty much its entire existence, 
was kind of suspected of being a bit religiously heterodox. It kept a lot of traditions that kind of predate the Immaculate Order as and when it was. And they said, no, no, we believe it's just martial tradition. But there were always suspicions of, are they worshipping elementals? Are they worshipping old war gods? Because of, well, the fact that their martial traditions predate, their martial traditions trace back to Tepet's own force. Yeah, and I think one of the main threads for that was worship of Mela, one of the elemental dragons. That gets brought up in various previous editions. There's not so much of it in third at the moment, but... Um, third does mention it, though, yeah. as Mela cults are, are a thing. Specifically, with they mention it with regard to how the Order isn't their biggest fan, even now. Fair enough. So, yeah, if, if, if you want to kind of have your military Mithra cult, then yes, you can have it with House Tepet just to give you another historical analogue for it. And then finally, we have House Veneeth. And now I'm going to set everyone up in arms and say they're also one of the good guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> house Veneeth are the youngest house by far of the great houses that are still around. They are descended... Not even, They're weird. Most of them aren't actually descended from Veneeth, who was a daughter of the Empress. Asvenif is quite renowned for kind of just gobbling up any dragon it can find, to the point that the majority of its scions don't actually have a blood relation to Venif herself. The thing with Asvenif, we mentioned them briefly in the Ragara thing. They're the only ones who don't owe Ragara money, and so Ragara hates them for it, because they got given as pretty much as a coming-of-age birthday present for Venif by her mum, the Merchant Navy, which is the fleet that the realm has that collects all of its tithes and taxes. As you can imagine, this gives them quite a bit of wealth. Yes, it was also taken from House Pelops, so you can make the argument <laughs> yeah. that it was done by the Empress to help balance out one of the more powerful houses. The thing with House Veneef, they, they are, again, I say they're a good guy house, and some people disagree with me because they do do some dodgy stuff, but they are the ultimate underdog house. That one shouldn't be too controversial to say, because... Pretty much none of the other houses like them. This is true. Some of them will tolerate them, because Veneef herself, uh, who is still alive, and her scions try to make alliances as best they can, because, well, with the Empress gone, they're in a very precarious position. Because while the Empress was alive, in her last years around, she was kind of setting House Veneef up to make them a proper great house and she disappeared arguably before she finished yeah absolutely i mean house Venef was elevated in realm year 754 which is 14 years before the present day and if you're trying to snatch things away from houses that have had their grip on things for generations and fighting against bureaucratic inertia that has been building up for centuries you've got a lot of kind of rejigging to do even if you do have the ultimate power to to rejig everything um so yeah venif is very very young as a house um and no one really likes them yeah and in terms of their individuals though i know we said before that the stereotypes of each of the houses are just stereotypes and you shouldn't really make a broad guess on what the average sign will be like but venif bucks that trend even more because of their habit of again adopting and integrating basically any dragon blood they can get their hands on. Even their stereotype is just broadly the wild card house. You can't really guess what an individual Venif is going to be like. That does have its downsides as well. There's no strong culture of how things are done in Venif, so you've not got any ways that 
things are really set in stone. You've got no institutional yeah. safeguards, so to speak. Yeah. But Vanif herself is still alive, and so she does, to a degree, try to keep things running on the day-to-day. And then finally, we have the half a house. The house that isn't a house. And the villain to use if you are playing a dragon-blooded game set inside the realm. <laughs> house is Elsie, my beloved. <laughs> <laughs> you just have a thing. I think we're establishing with just over the course of the last few episodes, but this specifically, and we're, we're not even that far into this episode, but Rels just likes underdogs, ladies and gents. That That's basically what it is. I, I do. I like underdogs, and I hate big shadowy manipulators. Derive all opinions of me from that. What happens if you have an underdog that is a big shadowy manipulator like House of Celsi? It goes 50-50. <laughs> it depends on who they're manipulating. Okay. I have no great love for the realm, and thus <laughs> House of Celsi is okay. Uh, whereas you could arguably say the Sidereals are an underdog who's manipulatory, given the numbers, mm. and I hate them. True enough. But yeah, House of Celsi. House of Celsi are not a house. House of Celsi do not exist. Any records of House of Celsi have been scrubbed and burned. They were quite literally given a damnatio memoriae by the Empress herself. All of their properties were taken, all of their satrapies given to other houses, because they had the genius idea of trying to assassinate the Empress. Yeah, only do that sort of thing if you can absolutely pull it off, and Aselsi really didn't. To be fair, when you read, again, I'm not sure if third keeps up on this, but I know second does, it is again a problem of they tried to bring someone else into the plot, and they were betrayed. And this being betrayed by other houses is kind of the chip on their shoulder. Because once they were caught, the Empress gathered them all up, took all their properties, as we said, but kind of just let the other houses go to town on them. And so the she gave the authority for the other houses to do it, but she didn't make too many moves directly herself here. And this was very, very deliberate, because now all of the animosity is towards the other houses, not the Empress. Because she let them live. She didn't actually execute most of them. I think a few were executed as a big showy symbolic thing, but most House of Celsius Scions survived. Yeah, they just got farmed out into other places. But yeah. they ne- were never allowed to forget what they were. Yeah. Which is the key and thing. The Empress herself ensured that as well, because once all of the once all of the damage was done, once they were well and truly hating every single other house for taking all of their stuff, for ruining their lives. The Empress gathers them all up in a nice little room and says, so you know how you hate all the other houses? And you know how you're really, really good at assassinating people to the point that you nearly pulled it off on me? Would you like to keep assassinating people for me? And I'll even set you up to assassinate all of the people that took all your stuff. Just assign yourselves, spread out, go undercover, infiltrate every house, infiltrate every family, make sure you've got agents wherever you can, and when I send the order, you bring out the knives. And so they did. House Iselsi agents will never call themselves Iselsi. There are, in fact, exactly five Iselsis who openly carry the name, and they're the ones that are hiding in the ancestral home as, basically, so that the other houses don't suspect that House Iselsi is everywhere, because they can say, oh yeah, here's the handful that got away and are just living out their lives in comfort for the average person, but relative poverty for a noble, under the protection of the Immaculate Order. But House of Celsius Scions are, depending on what your ref wants, everywhere or nowhere. 
always wearing a different name, always being friendly, integrating. They are sleeper agents. They will make sure that they are liked, that they are integrated into the social structures. And one day they will receive a letter saying, now. And then they kill whoever it is that they've been following as their mark and disappear into the wind. Yes. And we'll get into the precise bits of how that kind of culture evolves when we discuss how to sell C in a bit more detail in another episode. But yeah, I kind of your- did just do yeah. their advertising for them. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, that's what we're here for. That's a run through of the great houses. They form the aristocracy of the realm, as we said, and they have great families. There is a huge amount of negotiations about marriages. Marriages are very political in the realm as befits a matriarchal and, frankly, misandrist society. You get things like paying the groom price. Basically, if you have any stereotypes or anything about history for how badly the wife was treated in negotiations for a marriage, transplant that to the husband and you have the way the realm handles it. But they're also political to the point where you do not need an immaculate religious official at a realm wedding. You just need a magistrate to make sure that all the paperwork's in order. Yes. And and so all of these things between houses are negotiation between who gets someone who is from a particularly virile dragon-blooded line, if if someone's known to have come from a long line of producing a lot of dragon-blooded, or if there's a particular satrapy that gets traded as part of the marriage or wealth or that sort of thing. There's no strict titles attached to land as such in the way that the realm works but the the satrapil leases that are leased from the throne can be traded so that becomes part of the negotiations as well the thing however to note with the marriages is and it's we're again entering into the point where i start complaining about some inconsistencies because they didn't carry all of their changes into third edition through completely but these marriages, as we said, are very, very political. They're very rarely a love marriage, and if they are, that's coincidental. Loyalty isn't really expected, especially no. from the grooms. They they are entirely allowed to just go off and have lovers of whatever colour and stripe they like. And third keeps that through, even though it doesn't make sense because of the progenitive essence debacle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um... Yeah, there are there are inconsistencies in how exalted law works. The long and short of progenitive essence. Because we skipped over it in the Dragon Blood episode so that we didn't froth at the mouth. <laughs> we did. Is basically that after a certain time period, you're supposed to be extra inclined towards making a dragon blooded. So a certain time after you have joined in a union that's produced a dragon blooded, you're kind of at your peak as a male uh, for passing on proper dragon-blooded essence. This period that I should mention is about 20 years. That's when it peaks. You can do it beforehand, but the, po- the, point, the point to do it for maximum chance of a dragon-blooded child is in 20-year intervals. And yet they let them go off and have lovers as much as they like, which logically would reset the clock each time. Yeah. There's, there, there's the, there, there, again, inconsistencies with, with, how, with how that's treated. Or unless it's just an entirely biological 20 years since the last dragon-blooded child and you can do what you like in between that time. Yeah, but then even that kind of has the interesting and perhaps slightly funny thing of implying that logically you are, as a groom, as the second-class citizen that is a groom in in a uh, dragon-blooded marriage, you are entitled 
In fact, in a very Roman way, as many male lovers as you like, but heaven forfend, you look at a woman. <laughs> yes. But they don't consider that because progenitive essence was added in in third to try and veer away from the idea of the realm being quite eugenicist with it. But it kind of made it, it messed up a lot of other things and they didn't really seem to consider that because they changed that detail and not a lot of others. But yes, you've got those. And so marriages are a big thing. And also social status plays into that as well. It's not just can you produce dragon blooded? It's how um, well off is your family, how well known there are political considerations and everything else, as well as the practical. And so you've got that whole mess that's about, if you think about how any aristocratic set of families operates, apply that to the realm. That's absolutely how it works. And there's um, there is even bits like, it's kind of implied that there's almost like Jane Austen type novels that get produced about things like love marriages and so on. Um, in fact, I, I, because it is Pride and Passiap. There is just a magnificent passage which I'm just going to have to read to you because it is my favorite. It is legitimately my favorite satirical passage in any role playing game ever. I think it just beautifully encapsulates how everything works with dynastic marriages because it just sets you on the right tone, shall we say. This is about House Kafak's attitude to um, to marriages, and it is my favourite passage in any role-playing supplement that, uh, that certainly that Exalted has produced, but it, probably up there with in any role-playing game I've, I've read through. House Kafak strongly encourages daughters to join the military. This creates a need for husbands skilled in finance, administration and the like. Kafak marriages negotiations are tense affairs, but because they value skill over status and pedigree, they offer low-born sons of dynastic families fallen on hard times the hope of improving their station. Such marriages are thought to be warmer and more passionate than most, contributing to the starry-eyed way in which many young male dynasts dream of marrying into this house. Poetry and romance is about the impoverished son of a failing branch being swept off his feet by a Kathak officer of wide experience and taken off to a life of luxury and adventure are popular. Oh dear. That's how it works. And that's how I think that there's probably some kind of realm Jane Austen somewhere cranking out, <laughs> um, or maybe Jason Austen, uh, cranking out some kind of satirical text on how these marriages work and just kind of making them... Is chaplet a thing in the realm? It should be. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> I don't I don't know if it would, if only because I don't think literacy is wide enough adopted, so surely mm. it's even better. It will be your very nice manuscripted manuscripted scrolls, hand hand painted characters and the whole thing. That is just chiclet. Um, yes. Yeah. Chap chaplet. Absolutely. I'm coining yeah. the term in exalted now. But anyway, and <laughs> now we get to the ones that are outside of all of that. Um, at least in theory, the realm is quite assiduous in bringing in any and all dragon-blooded into its sway that it can. Uh, it's m most easy for it to do this on the Blessed Isle itself. And because dragon-blooded have many and various liaisons with anyone who they feel like, because um, that's one of the things that um, certainly in, um, in third gets pointed out in places, that Eventually, over the um, centuries of dragon-blooded existence, you will get bored with your um, with your baseline sexual orientation, um, and so you will start experimenting. And experimenting with peasants and so on will happen. And so, and and even if you've also got peasants um, and patricians who have long lineages and connections to pre-realm families who were dragon-blooded at some point, 
um, but it's somehow sputtered out. And then you can get you can get random dragon blooded popping up throughout the aisle. Um, yeah. And equally, equally, we did say sort of the experimentation with peasant thing. There is in what fire has wrought a wonderful little bit of fiction. Um, talking about a dragon blooded husband who pretty much just co- who just has a bunch of lovers out of spite because he doesn't like the person he got married to, which is also a completely another valid one. But either way, you get many various different ways of getting dragon blooded born outside of the great houses, okay. and so these will then get brought in from wherever they're found and re-educated about their place in the wider world that if they're dragon blooded, their social status gets immediately elevated. It's one of the very few ways in which you can move up in realm society. Unfortunately, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. But they are brought to a place called the Obsidian Mirror, which is basically a finishing school in how I see it. It tells you how to be a dragon-blooded and what your place is in realm society. It gives you all the kind of the, the niceties of etiquette and how you treat other people and so on that are part and parcel of a dynast's upbringing. And once they have completed that training, they have a very specific path of their own. Lost eggs or outcasts is a slightly broader term for them. Once they've finished off at the Obsidian Mirror, they get given the choice of taking the coin or taking the razor, which is basically you have the choice to either join the legions or you can join the Immaculate Order. And if you choose to join the legions, you are packed off to Passiap's Stair, which is a specific place for outcast military dragon-blooded to get drilled to within an inch of their life for the time that they're there. Or you've also got the razor, which is you become an immaculate monk and are packed off to the Cloister of Wisdom. Yeah, called taking the razor because you shave your head. Yes. In theory, Passiap's Stare was one way of making an impartial officer class for the legions. But that's kind of less the case now. It's implied that the Great Houses are kind of scooping up the more promising graduates from there almost before they finished and keeping them to themselves because there are no Imperial Legions in the present day in terms of how everything is administered. After the Lost Eggs, uh, we have the Patricians. These these ones are great. They Numerically, they probably make up the bulk of the nobility. Mm. and. Whilst technically you can have a mortal dynast, just a child that didn't exalt, most mortals in the in the nobility and within, I sometimes within the great houses as subsidiaries, sometimes as for use of a better term, independent nobility. Most nobility that is not dragon blooded is classified as a patrician house. There are bits in the literature that say they form up the bulk of the administrative class. They kind of form up the bulk of everything just by merit of. They're the mortals that are important. They will be the lowest tier officers and aides to camp in the legions. They will be your tax collectors and your bureaucrats. They will be your um, administrators of local land. They kind of will fill out everything. They are the way that you can have nobility while still mortal. And though legally and officially they aren't particularly regarded as different from the dragon-blooded noble houses, in practicality, if a dynast and a patrician who both belong to the same house have an argument, the dragon-blooded one will win and will get his way, because that's the way the realm works. You also have patrician houses that will quite faithfully serve as well and have their own lineages and everything they keep track of. And you don't get 
quite so much in the way of poaching from patrician houses as you do in other circumstances. If a patrician exalts, they're not considered a lost egg because they're already part of a house. They're just not a great house. Though equally, the great house that provides patronage is the term that they use to that patrician house will politely suggest that maybe their new dragon-blooded child gets married to their promising daughter and becomes a part of the bigger house. And then maybe this patrician house might accidentally come across a contract or deal from the great house just as a coincidence for it. There is poaching, it's just less aggressive and less open, but it still very much does happen. (laughs) Yeah, because of course it does. Um, And social pressure and everything else will do that, because if you have a dragon-blooded, each dragon-blooded from the realm gets a stipend provided from the throne, and that can elevate a patrician status quite magnificently all of its own on all of the kind of the trappings that kind of come with being a part of the 10,000 dragons that comprise the realm. You won't change class, you won't suddenly become a dynast, but you will have a source of pride to use as leverage against other people, or at least rub their faces in it. And honestly, if you don't become a dynast very quickly afterwards, like it's, it's not going to be for lack of options, because all of the houses, and especially the smaller ones, are very hungry to get as many dragon bloods as they can. Yeah, Venefa Nellens will be mm. desperate for some sort of marriage contract. Yeah, even Tepet occasionally. Like mm. they have their pride getting in the way. They are described as having their pride getting in the way a lot of the time from grabbing new dragons. But if you were a soldier, even if you weren't one of theirs, like if you were a soldier that exalted and the others haven't grabbed you first, Tepet will probably make you the offer. Yes, particularly now because they've had their officer class totally minced. Yeah. So long as you can make them feel like they're not taking too much of a step down, they can probably hold their noses and give it to you. Yeah, it is very much of a, a patrician dragon blood. If they've remained that way for long, it's by their own choice, not by lack of opportunity. Yeah. And what are they administering is the next question, which is the bureaucracy of the realm called the Thousand Scales, because a dragon is made up of a thousand scales and they have a ton of different offices, generally speaking, with their own flowery names to do all sorts of things. And potentially there are overlapping administrations as well. I think now is probably the time to get into the Thousand Maisie Paths, and the Empress's philosophy of government. She basically set up the realm to make sure that she was never the direct target for anyone trying to climb the ladder. So there was always supposed to be someone else in the way before you could get to that. Mm. But also, as well as protecting herself like that, she also very deliberately rigged the whole game so that it absolutely could not function without her poking and putting her fingers in places. Yes. Which, now that she's gone, is posing some trouble. (laughs) Yes. Basically, the way that she did a lot of things is that all authority flows out from her. A lot of things are appointees directly from her. And at the same time, a lot of offices have different auspices and regulations, and some will have authority over another. to make sure that they all function properly. To give you an idea, the tax offices and the way they work is probably the easiest example and the simplest 
example. For starters, there are two different types of tax. You have the land in the Blessed Isle itself, which is a prefectural tax, which is due to be done to the realm. The divisions of land on the Blessed Isle are prefectures. They're not satrapies. But you have prefectural taxes paid to the throne. You have the threshold and the satrapies that pay imperial taxes. And you've also got the imperial taxes that are collected on the Blessed Isle itself as well. Prefects um, who run the prefectures collect and spend the prefectural taxes, and that generally goes to infrastructure and the like. But the imperial taxes are collected by the humble and honest assessors of the imperial tax. (laughs) However, they collect it, but they are not allowed to spend it. It then goes to the imperial treasury, and the imperial treasury can spend what's collected. And the imperial treasury doesn't set the tax rate either. The tax rate was set directly by the empress. And so you have all of these different overlapping and not quite adjacent, not quite able to overtake the others offices that are set up in a very, very Byzantine way. And they were very intentionally set up that way. Yes. We... The tithes... Taxation within the isle and taxation without the isle behave very, very differently. What we just described there is pretty much the internal within the isle structures. Yep. The external taxation, or officially called the tithes, are more often nowadays, back in back in the high realm, back in the years of the high realm when the empress was still around, they would occasionally demand tithes in currency. But even then, it was more common, and now it's near unanimous, to demand it in resources, or occasionally even in services. There are some satrapies that pay their tithe in legions. And those things were arbitrarily, well not arbitrarily, by need, set by the Empress. So if it is a satrapy that has jade mines, their tithe will be jade. If it's a satrapy that has lots and lots of people but not many resources, they will be ordered to provide soldiers. The rate specifically um, for loans to the satrapies before we get to that should we discuss at the place of silver we should we should how that works Uh, now now we're on the topic now we're on the topic of satrapies and tax rates yes Um, silver and jade mm -hmm. um in brief silver is what most commerce by people is conducted in silver is for use of a better term it's used to yeah it's used to exploit all of the realms outside territories. Pretty um, much, it's jade is the jade is the gold standard because magical, because artifacts, because so many other things. Yeah, and if you make a big purchase in anything, even in mm. commerce, it will be in jade. Day to day stuff will be local currency, but yeah. large purchases will be jade. And yeah. also, only dragon blooded can deal in mm. jade. Yeah, but the when you're paying your tithes to the realm now via the merchant navy. Technically speaking, you will be told, I want so many talents worth of whatever it is you're providing, even if it's not jade. Like for the jade people, it's quite easy. I want 100 talents of jade, you mine 100 talents of jade. But if they are going for silk or food or whatever else you're providing, they will say, I want 100 talents of this, and they are talking in silver. The names of the units of currencies are mostly the same. There are some differences, but they're mostly the same between silver and jade especially at the high level, because talent's a big block. The amount that a talent's worth of silver worth of silk will be was, again, back in the Empress's day, there was a very, very specific and very, very fixed rate for it. It was 
determined by the salt rate, which was how they paid their tithes to the gods for the salt mines. Nowadays, because that kind of fell apart when the Empress left, as with so many things, it's kind of arbitrarily set by whomsoever is requesting it. And it is very often used to demand of the satrapies, basically, more and more tithe as and when the Isle wants it. Yes, it's not necessarily that this is a recent thing. The silver is, as an exchange currency to pay your tithes in, is a mechanism to basically get more of the value of a, th- of a thing than you would otherwise get. It's a way to screw over the provincials. Because yeah. you have to procure the silver, you have to find a way to get the silver, and then you pay whatever the rate is to get that. You're almost paying twice because um, what, because the realms, oh, you need you need to pay our taxes in silver. We can give you silver. <laughs> so, in exchange for this, yeah. The, so the rate is very, very exploitative. And it's... Again, back in back in the days of the Empress, it was it wasn't fixed, it would change, but it was predictable. Because she was at least consistent across the satrapies. Yes. If you were two satrapies providing silk, again, I don't know why I'm going to silk for my example, but it's the easiest one for. If you were two satrapies providing silk, the amount that she wanted from you for X amount of silver would be the same. Nowadays, because she's gone and because the tax agencies and the tithe collectors and the merchant navy are all different things. You cannot guarantee that. And they're all skimming. Mm-hmm. Everyone is taking money off the top. Yep. Um, but um, there's one of the other things that affects this. The, the rate of interest paid for loans is the salt rate. Yes. And that's essentially, it was set by the rate of tribute that the Blessed Isle had to pay to the, the Blessed Isle's salt gods to allow them to mine it. Because salt is as it is in, um, or as it was in quite a few ancient societies, a very precious thing. It's used as a staple in food, as it was then, and also to um, meat preservative, all the rest of it. And the additional fact of being a vital exorcism tool. So you have so many things that salt is used for, so salt is very valuable. So the salt gods have leverage, even over the empress, in a way that other things don't. So everything was kind of pared down to the salt rate for the interest on loans. Since the Empress has gone, uh, the salt gods are basically extorting things, demanding more and more for the access to salt. And because there's no one really there to enforce the salt rate being paid, because an awful lot of the things that had the authority to do that, the magistrates who will get to draw a lot of their authority directly from the Empress, it all goes to pot. Yeah. This is going to be the frequent discussion throughout this episode, by the way, that it was all working great, and now it's completely fallen apart. Well, it was working. So long as you were part of the working and so on, then it was working yeah. well. I wouldn't say it was working well for anyone who had to actually pay the thing. Oh, no, 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 no. It, was, it wasn't for <laughs> yeah. them, but it's the, the system was consistent. The system was predictable. It might not have been pleasant, but it was as close to fair as you could say. It's like, yeah, okay. you can't, yeah. It's when the Empress was around, she was a, I'll argue, just by her achievements, she was a stateswoman for first and foremost. Yes. And she did, like I sort of said, she made this system almost perfectly to run smoothly, to run cleanly, to run effectively, as long as she's there to make sure all the plates are still spinning. And in, in so doing, like I said, she made herself essential and made herself kind of immune from many threats. But now she's gone. Everything's falling apart. Yeah. And speaking of falling apart, welcome to the legions. 
the realm used to be impressive, bless them. They used to have armies that would march across creation and that no one could stop them. Back in the Empress's day, if the legions were getting deployed, with one notable city-sized exception, you were losing. The legions were near undefeated, again with one exception, <laughs> across the Empress's tenure. And they were divided into, broadly, two types of legion. There were the House Legions, where each of the Great Houses was allowed a certain military force of its own to deploy as and how they liked. Even in the Empress's day, they had some, they just weren't many. And then there were the Imperial Legions, which were nominally administered by the Empress herself. In practice, they had their own hierarchies that would be deployed as and when the realm required it. Be that for threats that were so big that she didn't want to leave the houses to do it, or times where she didn't want her house to collapse under a threat that she decided not to help with, or any other sort of reason that the Empress decides there needs to be an army or several here. Then she left and they all got poached. <laughs> Pretty much. It, it wasn't quite that. There was a meeting between the Immaculate Order and representatives of the Great Houses. There was a council held one year after the Empress disappeared, called the Council of the Empty Throne in, in Realm Year 764, whereby a whole bunch of Great House, Dragon-Blooded, um, and members of the Deliberative, which we'll get to in a bit, um, and the Immaculate Order all decided what on earth to do uh, now that the Empress was definitely gone for the foreseeable. So that, that was where things like a timer was set, that after seven years she was formally deemed to have abdicated which we're not up to yet in the current timeline. We're about two years away from that. But one of the other things that the Council of the Empty Throne did was to divide up the legions. Because the Empress had a final say on where the Imperial legions went and the Empress wasn't there anymore, no one could say where the legions were going to go. And so the houses divided up the legions between themselves. Generally speaking, the ones that were already militarily strong had a fair amount of claim to more legions because they had that pre-existing expertise and probably a lot of the officers would hail from those houses. And that's sort of a process that's been ongoing since the legions were split up. Any that were competent, but generally speaking, loyal to the realm, as opposed to the great house, are kind of pushed aside. Or if they die in battle, which is such an unfortunate occurrence, then they get replaced by people that are loyal to the houses. And so you have this gradual replacement of these impartial, loyal soldiers getting pushed out to make partisan military forces in a way that wasn't happening before. This is, again, another factor in why a realm civil war is inevitable. <laughs> yes. And yeah, the legions, there are a lot of them, and they all pretty much have a number and an epithet, for use of a better term. The one that immediately comes to mind, and probably is the case for many, is the 21st, which is the Red Piss Legion, which was made of convicts. It was a penal legion. Or the Vermilion Legion, if you are in polite company. Yes. But <laughs> as the rest of this podcast has established, I am not polite company. True. <laughs> but yes, the legions are now, like we said, tools of the houses, and it does have some very, very noticeable upsides on occasion. The fact that houses like Kathak and Peleps and broadly the less absolutely evil ones can now arguably act quicker than the Empress would have allowed. Because beforehand, they would have whatever personal forces they had, which wouldn't be much if, let's say, I don't know, the, some fairies decided to invade their back garden. 
they would need to wait for the Empress to stamp it and say, OK, you can fight back now to get much more than a handful of forces. Now they can do their own things. In practice, though, it just means that they're poaching soldiers, poaching talent and dividing the realm more and more and having little proxy wars with each other all the time. And speaking of proxy wars, we should probably get to the deliberative. Yes. Which is, nominally speaking, the realm's legislative body. It is a bicameral legislature, one house staffed with dynasts and one with patricians. These are all people that are handpicked by the empress when there is an empress. It was supposedly there to allow a wider range of voices for proposals for legislation to kind of democratise this empire to some very, very small, limited degree. It's, it was also there as a symbolic gesture. Yes. Again, the, the First Age Solar Realm had a deliberative. It had a bicameral deliberative. In the Solar Realm, the upper house was Solars and the bottom house was everyone else. There being Dynasts, which are all dragon-blooded, versus Patricians, which is your broad everyone else. It's again, it's it was a move by the Empress that tells the average Joe on the street that, yes, no, we're not a continuation of the Shogunate, which ruled over, broadly speaking, rough times. We're a continuation of the good old days that none of you were alive for, but that you all remember fondly. Yes, but there is a political purpose to this. The Empress was basically getting some loud dragon-blooded voices shouting about things she should be doing or legislation that they wanted. And they were also opposing her and making rebellious-type noises. Uh, So she created the deliberative and basically pointed all of her biggest critics at each other in the deliberative. So, yes, go away, debate what changes you would like amongst yourselves and present them to me when you're done. And so most of the visceral yelling and all the rest of it gets carried out in the deliberative, although yelling is probably something that's a little less common. But (laughs) it was basically the Empress saying that, okay, let's divert one set of my opponents, set them against each other. And then because she has final say on whether any legislation actually happens or not, then she can accept any that she was going to accept anyway and look like she's magnanimously bowing to the will of the people. Or she can just say, no, I'm not going to accept that. It basically allows her to carry on as she was, but just let people look like they had a say in the matter. They also have the role of appointing various people. They appoint prefects. They appoint garrison commanders in the satrapies. They don't appoint satraps, but they do appoint the military presence in the satrapies, which means that you can end up with a satrap from one house and a garrison commander in another, which can end up with some interesting political implications if someone wants to make a satrap look weak, for example. They can appoint imperial judges, people appointed to administer the law, chief ministers, members of the imperial force who are members of the guardians of the realm. Uh, to give them their to give them their full title, they are an imperial peacekeeping force overseen by the honourable and humble caretakers of the common folk. So another portion of the Thousand Scales, effectively but the deliberative appoints their officers and any other sort of high positions that require appointees, the deliberative can appoint. In times when there is an empress, the empress, of course, has final veto over whether or not anyone actually gets appointed or not. But if they're not going to do horrible things, then she lets the deliberative get on with things. They meet in their parliament in the imperial city, which is the 
wonderfully named, I adore exalted names, the Palace of the Deliberative Senate of Exceedingly Judicious Nobles. Which is basically just a complex that is, it does have a hall for debates, but it's also a place with very, very luxurious gardens where you can stroll around in company and discuss things with your fellow deliberative members. Palace of Westminster. Yeah, and just kind of plot and scheme and come to your backroom deals and do your horse trading outside of the main bit and then go into the chamber and it all gets sorted out. Um, The things that they are not allowed to do, uh, they are not allowed to grant satrap leases, as I said. They are not allowed to appoint magistrates, who we will get to, and they are not allowed to dissolve great houses. And now we come to the times of the Empress's disappearance. We've said every decision of the deliberative is subject to the Empress's veto. There is no Empress anymore. And so in the absence of the Empress, we have a regent appointed. We have, it was mentioned last episode just because the name is fantastic. Uh, The regent, um, who is immortal, by the way, which says absolutely everything that you need to know about what the regent is intended to do. The regent is... Tepit Fukov or Fukov. No, Fokuf. Fokuf. There is no way Fuk-oof. you can not pronounce- Tepit Fukov. <laughs> it's effectively that. Come on. Yes, it absolutely is. And his job is to sit there in a fancy hat and sign off on all of the things that the other people give him. He is a rubber stamp. He was a compromised candidate that no one ever had any illusions would have any form of independent thought whatsoever. And so. It was basically a tool for the deliberative to increase their own purview because they have a yes man in power. And a tepet because of all the great houses. It kind of had to be a house man. And of all the great houses, the one that's easiest to make sure that they're not going to exert undue influence is tepet. Basically. Both because they're diminished and also because they were and still are to a degree trustworthy. Well, yes. Quite how much Fukuf is actually trustworthy himself is debatable. But so long as he does what he's told, it doesn't really matter. He gets to live in the lap of luxury and that seems to be enough for him. Pretty much, yes. We then get on to the the fun part of the Empire, (laughs) the intelligence agency of the all-seeing eye. They are somewhere between... Well, not somewhere between, in fact. They are a combination of both internal and external intelligence. Yep. The legions themselves, they'll have scout forces, but they won't have proper intelligence ops. That is given to the all-seeing eye. So they will be your secret police in the realm. They will be the ones spying on people to make sure that they're not secretly solars or harbouring solars or what have you. But equally, they will be the ones who will when the realm wants to try and exert military force abroad, or even just a softer touch, they'll quietly send an agent into mostly look shy, nine times out of ten it's look shy, (laughs) to try and stir up trouble. Yeah. Or find little bits of information. If you're looking for real-world comparisons, they are a combination of the NSA and the CIA, or for the Brits, they are both MI5 and MI6, although those are depreciated terms, you know what I mean. Yeah. They're yes. the cooler terms, so we keep them. <laughs> yeah. They are, as I sort of mentioned in the house thing, they are mostly, like, they have people from all the houses in them just because it's a big employer, but they are mostly assessors operation. A lot of its higher levels mm-hmm. are assessor scions, and the eye as a whole, like most things in the realm nowadays, is an extension of the will of the houses, and the eye is broadly considered by all of the rivals to be a tool that assessors can use more so than them. Yes. First edition was more fun because they also said that it was absolutely chock full of House of Celsi. 
which is a funny thing to do, depending on how you run House of Celsi, which we'll get into in the inevitable Celsi episode. <laughs> they also said it was full of sidereals, like every bad thing in the world. Yeah, the sidereals being the puppet masters of reality, they have to have some sort of presence within the thing that's supposed to be puppeteering and keeping an eye on stuff for the realm. And these guys are mostly in competition with the magistrates, which is a lovely, lovely organisation. I absolutely love the magistracy. I think it might also explain a lot that I'm a sucker for the Inquisition in 40k, because they're broadly the (laughs) same role. The magistrates are direct appointees by the Empress, and so there haven't been any new magistrates for quite a while, and quite a few people like it that way. They are legally barred from having any possessions whatsoever. They are legally empowered to commandeer anything at any given moment, and they are charged with wandering the realm and enforcing imperial law however they see fit. The magistrates, as we say, were always appointed by the empress directly. The first magistrates were what close confidence she had that survived the original taking of the imperial manse, and the ones that she picks now are generally the ones that she can make sure owe her everything, so that she can guarantee that Wherever they go, they are just functioning for the good of the realm and for the for her good, uh, rather than owing anything to any houses or whatever, which is also why they're barred from owning any property. You can't bribe someone who can say, I can't accept that bribe because you give me money and it's illegal if I keep it. But, however, I will demand for your impertinence that you will now have entertainment sent from every direction so long as I stay here. <laughs> I can bankrupt you with parties just as well if I see fit because that is well within their purview. They can say, right, I want this, this and this because they can legally requisition anything. It's not explicitly said anywhere that they do things like the Chinese white elephant, but I can imagine that's one way that they could kind of bleed someone dry. Thai. Thai white elephant. Thai white elephant, sorry. But yeah, the the magistrates as a whole... They are arguably, and I know this is going to come up when we get to our thing because you've done it, but they are arguably written as player characters. Yes. Because they are mostly, roughly, kind of independent of a lot of the house squabbling. Yeah. They can still be part of it, but most dragonbloods within the realm, most people within the realm, frankly, slot into the squabbling of the dragonblooded houses whether they want to or not. The magistrates are one of the few groups that can actually step back from it and Mm -hmm. still operate. Yeah. And for that very reason, most people at the moment don't like them. I mean, (laughs) it's their job to root out corruption. So at the best of times, they're going to be dealing with people who are going to be suspicious of what they're up to. It's the idea of, well, why is a magistrate coming to see me? I don't have anything going on, which is going to be what you're thinking, even if you do have nothing going on. But it's also something that, They have their protection in the form of the Empress. If anyone touched a magistrate, they were answerable to the Empress. I mean, not literally touched. It's not not exactly the Tribune of the People, but that's also another possible source of inspiration. But um, with their protection gone in that you're answerable to the Empress if you harm a magistrate, they are being offed at a good rate of knots because they can get in the way of so much in the way of political machinations from whatever house who happens to be trying to do things underhandedly in order to increase their own influence, uh, then you have magistrates come up and you can't protect them anymore. So equally, they're one of the few groups that isn't at massive risk of being exterminated by House Elsie, entirely because of that. 
<laughs> which is a nice, pleasant exception to the rules. Because, yes. again, House of Celsi, we'll get into it more in their episode, they're kind of loyal, but kind of evil. <laughs> <laughs> yep. They're loyal to the Empress and not anyone else. Yes. And it's the, exactly the same but deal yeah. with the Magistrates. Now we get on to the water with the two navies. There is the Imperial Navy, as we said, pretty much owned by House Perleps, and there is the Merchant Fleet owned by House Veneef. In theory, this is supposed to be the Imperial Navy is all of the gunships and martial and military items, and the Merchant Fleet exists to transport tithes and taxation from the satrapies across the Inland Sea back to the Isle. Of course... The merchant fleet needs some martial ships to protect itself in case of piracy, and in practice nowadays both of them are martial fleets, just one of them carries a lot of money. Yes, and there's less martial stuff in the merchant fleet because they've had less time to build it up, because they didn't need to until the merchant fleet was split from the Imperial Navy, because they were all controlled by the same house, and so Peleps could talk to Peleps and arrange cover. But then, equally, now that Hasvanif has it, Whilst they haven't had the time to build ships, they have had the wealth to buy them. Yes, that's true. Um, and yeah, they they are, as we sort of said, because of the house squabbling, because of the different houses, they're actually quite at odds with each other. Yes. There are occasions, not amazingly many, but enough that it is somewhat, not publicly widely known, but most members of House Pelops and most members of House Veneef kind of intuit that there are times when one fleet will attack the other. And, oh, that's unfortunate that pirates sank your ship. Yeah, <laughs> terrible. Although they do have slightly different spheres of influence almost, at least in how they're presented in third, that the merchant fleet, as we said, are going backwards and forwards between the Threshold and the Blessed Isle. So they'll spend most of their time in the Inland Sea. They do have some jobs out west, but they will have a lot more contact with loyal satrapies than they will with disloyal ones and ones that are far flung and loosely controlled. Yeah. So. If you're doing well, you get the merchant fleet. If you're rebelling, you'll get the Imperial Navy coming down on you. So there shouldn't be that much overlap in theory. But this is, again, all in theory. And theory is breaking down at the moment, if you hadn't already gathered. The one place where that isn't true, however, the one place where it's pretty much continuing as designed to today is the Immaculate Order, the Church of the Realm. The state religion. Yeah. I know it's a bit controversial to say it's pretty much continuing, but I don't see any major departures from design there like I do in all the other branches. It's still doing roughly as it was intended to do, probably because of all of the bits of the imperial system, it's the most independent. Yes, it has its own sort of history and its own authority that is not as dependent on the realm. It doesn't really state anywhere that they take tithes directly that I can remember, but they must do. But yeah, they they have... I'm assuming here, I'm going to treat them broadly like how Buddhism has behaved in East Asia, because whilst theologically they differ, in how they organise themselves, they're near identical. Amongst the lay people, the temples, the shrines, all the bits. They, they will tend to, as was the case medievally, they will take donations from all of the supplicants, and you happen to be a very bad and evil person if you are not giving them which for the average peasant means very little, but for the satraps, for the dynasts, it'll be that the pressure that is not directly people with clubs saying give us money and more, oh, well, Sinus Jeffries has not given us his donation. He must be falling into sin. <laughs> yeah, and you have enough social pressure there to kind of exercise yeah. that. 
The Immaculate Order was an inherited faith from the Shogunate that was in the process of being refined. The Immaculate Order in its current form was hashed out in a deal between the Empress and Chejop Kajak. <laughs> the villain of the setting. <laughs> yes, if you're you. <laughs> who was a, a sidereal leader of the Bronze Faction who basically decided, yeah, we don't want the Solas around mm. anymore. And he's still alive. He's the oldest exalt living. Yes. It was basically settled on the, at that point that the Immaculate Order and the Realm were going to work together while the Empress was kind of was squatting in the Imperial Mance and with her finger on the switch for the Sword of Creation, the Realm Defense Grid, the Nukes of Creation. And so in order to have some other way of the Empress controlling things and ensuring a stable creation, which... As you said, it's functioning kind of as designed, regardless of all the Civil War stuff, which is kind of a good thing in its way. The Immaculate Order, just to get into the sort of the doctrine, it does support order because the perfected hierarchy is the kind of the core teaching of the Immaculate Philosophy, um, that you are supposed to know your place, fulfil your role, serve dutifully in whatever role you're given, and then you will reincarnate as a higher order being somewhere at some later date along the chain. And that hierarchy is the perfected hierarchy. And the perfected hierarchy says that the dragon-blooded sit at the top. And so the realm, because it's ruled by dragon-blooded, have a divine mandate to rule. So if you say dragon-blooded aren't supposed to rule, you're going, you're committing not necessarily heresy. You're certainly going against the teachings of the main thing. Blasphemy. Yeah, blasphemy is a reasonable term. Yeah, without getting too much into religious semantics. Yeah. They do use heresy as a term for other things, like the Hundred Gods heresy, for example. Yes, which we should probably get into. But before we get into that, that also gives tools for the Order to do things politically, to act against corruption and so on. If someone is being an irreverent dragon-blooded and not paying their dues, acting licentiously and abusing people who are perfectly performing their lower role within the perfected hierarchy, then they are acting against the teachings of the Immaculate Philosophy. And so the monks will try and bring them to heal, which can mean everything from official reprimands from the order to things like one-on-one -on -one kung fu duels to ensure compliance to the order actually being the driving force behind peasant rebellions. Because if a particular dragon-blooded isn't doing the right thing, own crops are failing and everything else, and causing unrest, which is a bad thing because it makes peasants rise up and want more than their station, then the monk can say, yes, you are not acting in accordance with the perfected hierarchy, so we are rebelling against you. We're going to depose yeah. you and bring in a worthy dragon-blooded. This is also a nice little parallel historically, again, between how broadly... It did kind of happen in Europe, but not as much as it happened in Asia with actual Buddhist authorities basically deciding that we don't like the local government. It was a <laughs> massive thing in Japan. It's yeah. where there was, there was quite fun-wise, a period of about 50 years where the, the shogun, as it was at the time, tried to get rid of Buddhism because this just kept happening. <laughs> <laughs> nice. One of the other things that the Immaculate Order does is sets the prayer calendar for the year. It is not the place of mere mortals to offer prayers to the gods. Only the dragon-blooded can offer prayers to the gods directly on behalf of everyone. Despite this, many people do. It's just the way of things. You cannot police things like prayer. Not too effectively, anyway. And in order to make sure that each given god is 
receiving their due piece of worship and no more and no less there is an immaculate prayer calendar so everyone gets allotted their own festivals their own times to be prayed for that sort of thing and if anyone steps out of order trying to extort more worship or anything else then the monks will come and beat the gods up i suppose godbusters is the best term <laughs> i can come up with for it because they do and this is again it'll be it won't actually be covered more in our section with this because it applies in so many other places, but it is arguably a game design for dragons. Yeah. Because it is, it is a monster of the week kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And for them, it is. It's the day job. They will go to, oh, the local... And there are lots and lots of gods in creation. So it could be, ah, yeah, this time, the local river god is being a pain and not letting us transport things without flipping the boats because he wants more prayer or more items or whatever the heck. And so the monks get sent over to call the god up and kick him in the chin. <laughs> but that's the day job. It's, it's, that, it's that thing that I really love about Exalted that is a real draw with it. That I always struggle to, in- to articulate properly, but it is the, the banality of the fantastical that it tries to make. Yes, it's a really kind of a nice way of kind of making a difference between it and other role-playing games because things like gods have an integral point in, in the setting in a way that they don't in quite a few others. They're, they're just sort of there and they do stuff. Whereas here you have very real physical, social consequences for gods not doing their jobs. And the Immaculate Order is part of making sure that all works in yeah. the way that it's supposed to. Yeah. And we did sort of touch on it earlier. We mentioned by name the Hundred Gods heresy. It's not the only one, not by far. Nope. Like that Hundred Gods heresy, that's that it's the worship of lots of other gods because there are lots of them it's where you can worship them directly yeah it's basically anyone who decides to go against the notion that only dragon bloods can worship the gods and decide to worship them directly they are fall under the hundred gods heresy and will be punished but there are other heresies that are more interesting like we mentioned in the tepet section the cults of mela which are a heresy that may or may not exist today where it's worshiping the elemental dragons directly which isn't supposed to happen or, most interestingly, a cult of the Empress, which the Immaculate Order quietly pretends doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, because the Empress is the most powerful dragon-blooded in creation. Everyone will know who she is if they're part of the realm. And she never does anything wrong. That's one of the things that's quite apparent in how this is all thought about. When the Immaculate Order leads rebellions, it's never that the Empress's authority is being questioned. It's just that the local governor is doing things wrong and is and one of the angles to it is besmirching the good name of the Empress and acting against her authority and stuff like that. So she becomes a sort of an intermediary. Yeah. And when people start worshipping her, that's a problem because of how the hierarchy works, but you've made her unassailable. We've already compared the magistrates to the Inquis- Inquisition. I'm going to compare this to the, the Emperor's gaining of divinity in 40k, <laughs> where he was just a guy, a person, just like the Empress is just a dragon, but by both propaganda and actual skill, seems so perfect that the populace will just start worshipping it as a god, because yes. what other than a god could do this? Yeah, that makes total sense. That's the Immaculate Order in how it functions within the realm. We've been kind of descending, in a sense, in terms of the order of importance, but from this we sort of get to the peasantry, who are the ones who till the soil and so on. There is a bit of a divide here, because the Blessed Isle peasants are 
still in theory supported. They have less taxes to pay than the threshold because a lot of it kind of falls under central administration and a lot of the aisle is easy to work because everything works properly. There's a lot more in the way of functioning first age artifice around. The ley lines are generally uncluttered. Even the fact that geographically, just like how the scavenger lands is really, really good for growing crops, the aisle mm-hmm. is as well because of proximity to the elemental pole of earth. The soil is good. Yeah, and so peasants' lives on the Blessed Isle are relatively easy. That's not to say they are easy, but they are among the better if you're going to have a lower class of life anywhere in creation. Peasants elsewhere don't get referred to as peasants as much because they're not inherently realm citizens. The threshold, as much as the realm has satrapies and has satraps to run them, they have their own governments and administrations independent of the realm just so long as they pay the taxes um, the realm doesn't really care how they're governed so peasants are less of an absolute thing in the threshold but they absolutely are on the blessed isle some places will have a proper peasantly class like again the satrapy around marin bay basically the ones where it makes sense to have a these are better a farming class who you actually do want to keep going so that they keep producing they will have it again i know the marin bay satrapy does actually have peasants almost identical to how the central realm treats them, um, just because the soil's good here and the farming is good. But then in places like the south, where there isn't going to be much farming, you're not going to see it. No. The next rundown from peasants are slaves. Peasants have legal status to be able to own things and own themselves. Slaves are property of other people. It absolutely runs the gamut here for in terms of what a slave is. The thing that most audiences will run to in the modern era is plantation slaves, chattel slaves, and associate things with the transatlantic slave trade and that sort of thing. But it runs the gamut from that to plantation slaves, to tight house staff, to tutors who have no formal station, to actual sex slaves, and that sort of thing. The slave trade is the monopoly of House Sinus, and it will viciously encroach on anything that is trying to impinge on that. And so there are abolitionist movements within the realm slightly. Nellens himself was one of the ones that was one of the most anti-abolitionist. And so there there are definitely abolitionist trends that have had to have been stemmed. Nellens is behind the law that each dragon-blooded is legally allowed to free one slave a year. So you can have emancipation. You just can't have mass emancipation. You cannot get whole movements of a whole people becoming free um, that it can um, can aspire to do. It was a little stricter in previous editions. I did notice in first edition that each dragon-blooded can free three slaves every decade and must petition the deliberative directly to be allowed to do it. Granted, it says that they generally didn't refuse them. <laughs> because why would you? It's In the way that the realm behaves, it's just a slave. Yeah. Them being there and them being free... Because of the numbers that Sinus can traffic them in, one or two doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why emancipation is so limited. It's to protect Sinus's economy. It's also interestingly that this does lead to, not inside the Isle, of course, partially because the Guild doesn't have much foothold there, but how Sinus and the Guild out in the Threshold keep butting heads. Yes. Because the Guild run the slave trade everywhere else. (laughs) Yes. And so you can have some fun, fun games with Dragon Blooded and the Guild just out slaver each other. 
And then we have our the bottom rung of this pyramid, who are officially known as the Dispossessed. They are, again, if we're going for real-world analogies, they're your untouchable cast. Pretty much exactly. Or outlaws. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that they're a bit stronger than outlaws, if only because of an outlaw could still... We'll go through in order. An outlaw yeah. could still get a job, is my point. That's true. The Dispossessed, it's for mostly crimes and misdeeds. Nowadays, it can also just be pissing off the wrong person. And bear, and bear, and bear in mind that it's also not a single... It's not a single person's crime. Single people are not dispossessed. It is done to whole communities. Yeah, it will be the it will be the thing of like again, sometimes it will be actual crimes, like let's say your local village is harboring an anathema. That I think is the one that the game wants you to believe is the standard. Yeah. But it can just as equally be, oh, the local Sinus dynast came in and was being all highfalutin and one of your people spat on him and he has now decided to go crying to mummy and there is now the empress is gone the houses can kind of weigh that authority in to do this yes although it's still something that's probably best done for communal offenses like persistent not paying taxes or a failed rebellion that sort of thing yeah it's officially listed that the people are branded sometimes this will be literally individually with the brand um for use of a better term but there are equally sort of cases of, for use of a better term, this is again a second ed thing, of basically just, I don't want to say walling it off, because it's not literally walling it off, but I'm basically going to talk one of the bits of fiction in second edition had an army pretty much just encircle a village and wait, and just not let anyone out. It's that sort of thing. Sometimes it's not a literal physical branding. It is just a mark of this people, this village, this settlement. It is more commonly to sort of settlements than peoples as you and i would say um and yeah they are pretty much again like i said untouchable cast is a better analogy because you can do absolutely anything to them with, with no legal recourse but they are not allowed to work you cannot make them well, no, you can enslave them but that's if you're a house sinus person who already has the authority to enslave but you cannot make them work for you so as to protect sinus's monopoly on slavery and it's also supposedly a thing to make the slaves think, oh, well, at least we're not them. Yeah. There is something worse than slavery. If you rise up in a large-scale slave rebellion, you can become dispossessed with everything that that implies. Yeah, because slaves, it, it is still a crime to assault a slave. It's property damage, but it's still a crime. Yeah, it's still a crime. Whereas to a dispossessed, your local dragon blood can, well, they can... For once, to reference something that isn't 40k, you can do the shadow run, hunt run sort of thing where you, your dragon bloods who want to just go out and kill something can just walk into wherever these dispossessed are and stab someone and it's fine. Theoretically, a mortal could as well, but let's be honest, it'll be a dynast that does it. <laughs> yes. And that's pretty much the pyramid of the realm. We now know how the realm works. We now know who's in it, what's in it. The one last question remaining then is, when you are pretty much a world-spanning empire, like there are places that aren't within the realm's purview, but they are quite literally the fringes. Who are the enemies? The East is, is the first and foremost word, and not even just the East as a whole. It's Lukshai. Bless them. Lukshai, the real heroes of the piece. Lukshai, uh, we sort of covered it before, it's a city that, one of the few dragon-blooded hegemonic states that isn't the realm. Whilst the realm, as we sort of said many times, is trying to claim continuity from the first age realm more than anything, Lukshai does not make any qualms about being a continuity of the Shogunate. They are an outpost of the Seventh Legion, all of these things, and they are strategically situated 
on the mouth of the Yanazi River into the scavenger lands. The scavenger lands is a very, very valuable place to have. Crops grow faster there, there's loads of first age kit about. The realm has wanted this since the realm became a thing. The realm's tried to invade Lukshai four times across its history, and four times it's failed. Yeah, and they've kind of sunk down into kind of an uneasy peace because both of them know that to invade the other is a terrible idea at this point. Yeah, Lukshai has never actually tried a direct offensive against the realm. They've not seen that as their purview. Their purview was defend the river province, and they have been defending the river province. And across the four invasions, sometimes they were able to rally the other cities of the scavenger lands to work together. Sometimes it was just Lukshai. Every time the realm sends forces, three out of four of these were when the Empress was around. The last one was post-disappearance, and the last one was the one that is most confidently called a defeat. Because the first three, you can argue, are just repelling. Because Lukshai didn't really win amazingly, but they did make sure that the realm didn't take anything. But the fourth time, post-Empress's disappearance, when it was a project of houses, Tepet and Kathak, Tepet trying to basically hold a comeback tour after getting absolutely trounced by the Bull of the North, was completely and utterly defeated rather than just repelled. Lukshai sent an operative into their camps in the night with an artifact known as a Soulbreaker Orb, which is the funniest little ball they'd all have exalted, uh, and killed the majority of the forces there because they set it up. A Soulbreaker Orb is basically a small nuke. Yes. It kind of does what it says in the tin. But yes, Lukshai is the big enemy, and Lukshai is the one that keeps winning. Otherwise, the standard one that you might imagine, they don't like Anathema because they're immaculate. Yep. Though. Since Tepet, well, since Tepet died, basically, they've not really made many direct moves to try and poke the Bull of the North. Because even though it was arguably a setup, the rest of the realm now, no one thinks they're up to the task if Tepet wasn't. Yes, the Immaculate Order and the Immaculates of Lukshai as well, but the Immaculate Order is the biggest source of this, has an institution called the Wild Hunt, which will hunt down and kill Anathema. This was supposedly a good and noble thing for Dragonblooded to engage in, and it's one of the ways of showing piety and that sort of thing. Anything that's a supernatural threat to the realm, they hunt down, they kill. And that basically meant things like Lunars, for the most part, um, any Solars that were hanging around, uh, of which there were a few. The general rule the Immaculates take to Solars is the moment you hear news that even could be a Solar, you send a kill team, because... The general rule, and this is from a second edition book that Immaculates have with Solas, is kill them quick, because if you give them any amount of time to learn what they can do, they become trouble. And this also leads to some immense amounts of overreactions. There was one example of where the Wild Hunt sent to kill a rumour of a Solar Exalted caused someone to exalt while the village was being destroyed. So yes, it, it, overreaction is absolutely the name of the game with Wild Hunts. They will send armies after a, a handful of individuals and mm. so on. But the Wild Hunts are essentially in a state of starting to be defunded at this point because the Great Houses are all hunkering down and thinking, oh, who's going to strike first in the realms of a war? No one wants to put significant military force behind the yeah. wild hunt because it's not going to be militarily advantageous to them. Which has led to a space that, conveniently, as we are at year zero, that the solars that do exalt now actually have a bit of breathing room where they can wake up. But arguably, the biggest threat to the realm is the realm. <laughs> yes, you can absolutely argue that one. <laughs> We've kept mentioning the realm civil war and the various house squabbling 
we've even mentioned briefly that the houses do sometimes directly attack each other, mostly Pelops and Venif. It is very much the case of if the realm actually united properly, there'd be nothing on creation that could stand up to it. But as it currently is, it's likely to spell its own doom. Yes. And there is absolutely the clock ticking. As we said, there was the Council of the Empty Throne that was convened after one year of the Empress's absence. They decided that the Empress would be considered to be officially abdicated after seven years of being gone. So when that seven-year clock is up, the regency is kind of null and void. And so a new regent will have to be appointed as kind of the minimum that will happen, absolute minimum. But once everyone is kind of preparing and hunkering down, thinking that once that seven-year clock ends, that's when the fighting is going to start. And people are going to be actually claiming the Scarlet Throne for themselves. Yeah. And this is, again, we'll get into more detail on it, and frankly, probably its own episode, The Nature of the Realm Civil War, because that's a whole thing. But there are quite a few claimants. With all of that done... I think now we have to start cracking open our history textbooks. Yes. A lot of this, I think, will probably be revisiting what we've already talked about in another frame of reference, but just get absolutely mm. everything down so that you can get your chronology straight and kind of place everything into an understanding of how everything settles. The realm was founded by the Scarlet Empress uh, following the annihilation of the Balorian Crusade, the invading armies of fair folk. Uh, when the Scarlet Empress, or the person who would become the Scarlet Empress, managed to break into an ancient First Age manse, defeat all of the various guardians of whatever was down there, and then used the Sword of Creation, or the Realm Defense Grid, to wipe out all of the Fair Folk all at once. This was a targeted nuclear strike across all of creation, and essentially caused everyone to think, what? For what on earth was going on? And from that point, it was just a scramble to think, what's going to happen? What kind of thing's going to be a fallout from this? Politically, I mean, there wasn't any actual fallout from the deployment of the Sword of Creation. I should make that one clear. It was what propelled her to the throne, basically, by merit of, I've shown I can use this weapon. Who's next? Pretty much. There was an attempt to unseat her pretty much the moment that it happened. The wonderfully named Seven Tigers Uprising. Yes. Uh, they were a bunch of shogunate generals who basically decided that they were the ones who should be ruling and thought that, right, okay, so we can now move back from our positions on the edges of the world because they were defending the edges against the fair folk. And exactly where they were isn't clear. Um, in first edition, it stated that they met at Lap to make their battle plans, which is in the north and they made preparations to invade, having already divided up creation between themselves as to how it should be ruled. And were preparing their ships and getting everyone on board and fleets were setting sail. And then the Empress pushes the button again and completely obliterates the invading fleet. After that point, everyone's a little bit slower in trying to depose the Empress and a little bit less direct. And it's around that time, basically once the Empress has made it clear to everyone that she is now the boss, that on a dark stormy night with lightning crackling in the background, Chejop Kajak pays a visit. This is obviously what happens whenever he appears. Depending on your edition depends on how this meeting went. Older editions tend to say it's a negotiation. First and second will sort of say that, yeah, the Empress and Chejop met in a room and discussed what's to be done then. 
Chajop uses the standard sidereal lie of we just want to protect creation, you seem to be a good way to do this. She says she needs religion to enforce and make sure that she can control people without the sword, like we discussed earlier. Third edition says that Chajop just came down and told her, right, if you want to rule, we'll make a church for you. Yeah, in first edition, an awful lot of the early realm is portrayed as kind of a logical progression from the Empress's perspective as to what she needed to do. She was given quite a bit of agency in what she was doing, whereas the presentation in third tends to draw away a bit from that. I think part of that is to try and make the Empress a bit more mysterious and so that you can't give her more direct and relatable human motivations. Basically so that any character, any NPC saying, this is what the Empress would want, you don't have an actual canonical basis to go off of what she would want. Yes. But yeah, once the negotiations with Chejop were concluded, they decided what they were going to do, that he'd agreed that the Immaculate Order would be on side in promoting this new realm and reinforcing it, and she wouldn't get in his way. Then... The Scarlet Empress made a broadcast to all of creation using another part of the Sword of Creation's gimmicks. Which I, I will I will say, because in the second edition adventure path, Return of the Scarlet Empress, it also gets used. The way this looks visually was described, and it's hilarious. Ooh, far away. So, a giant... A gigantic, basically, hologram of the Empress's face, like Zordan off a Power Ranger sort of thing, appears above the Imperial Mance, bright enough that it's visible across all of creation, and she starts talking. Slightly different interpretation in third, that it's basically a several metres tall representation of her broadcast in every village. She basically uses it to declare herself the empress of creation and say that you will now comply your empress is here sort of thing and then she sort of sets out with the process of actually making that happen through various other of her army buddies she then rules the blessed isle within a year basically mopping up any resistances to her rule on the blessed isle and after that point or th- throughout that you've kind of got the imperial city building up from all of the petitioners that are coming in saying can you please do this for us can you please do things for us or can you or marry me there were lots of that yeah this is also when she starts collecting yeah. boyfriends or girlfriends <laughs> and girlfriends she's not picky she has several like, i believe there's somewhere in second definitely that there's like an entire wing of the imperial palace that is just all of her various lovers she basically picks a whole bunch of consorts from people around the imperial mountain the first one was araka jeresh originally hailing from Arjulf who came and said, you are obviously very, very capable, but I want to share the burden of rulership with you to make sure that you don't buckle under the strain or words to that effect <laughs> in delightfully patronising tones. And she told him to basically jog on. <laughs> by blowing up his mance. Yeah. At which point he comes appropriately humbled and just gets turned down, but... He was the first of the all-seeing eye when that was established in realm year 38. So this is obviously just happening over the course of years that many, many people are coming along making overtures to, can you either do this or marry me or whatever? She entertains various ideas. There have been various marriages throughout her history. She's obviously outlived and and wives. And they do never actually, they never actually explain how she got her immortality. No. With the exception of a second edition adventure path, which is going to have its own mention in a later episode. (laughs) 
Yes, absolutely. And the other notable one, apart from Juresh or Araka, whichever way you want to spin it, it doesn't actually clarify that um, th- those terms, but Juresh is probably the given name, given the way around it is. Mm. Tepet actually managed to lay siege to the Imperial Mance and was then taken on as a lover by the Empress and thus one of the great houses happened. Yeah. The Magistracy was formed from, in first edition, it just says it's directly those who were with her when she raided the Imperial Mance or those that survived. Not that many of them that went into the final chambers survived, those that were part of her force, but her original companions was the wording in third or words to that effect. And it's, it's a bit more nebulous. And you have the thousand scales kind of just evolving as a thing over the course of the next few decades. Just from the necessity of trying to administer yeah. an empire. Yeah. And the legions were formally founded in realm year 40. She resets the calendar from the year that um, she annihilated the fair folk was realm year one, just for clarity. She was then trying to expand into the threshold to essentially serve the Blessed Isle because she was aware that the Blessed Isle wasn't entirely self-sufficient as much as it is very easy to grow stuff there. It doesn't have everything it needs. And so you needed to expand out in order to make the realm self-sufficient in its way or get it all the things it needed at least. And this is where Wars with Lookshy started happening between the years 57 and 89, which none of them went very well. Shall we just leave it at that? They weren't defeats for the realm, not in the same way the last one was. It's just that they that Lookshy is a fortress city. They couldn't take it, and because of where it's placed, without taking Lookshy, you can't really keep anything further in. Because around this time, yep. they did get a hold of Thorns. And... Yep. Um, and they did diplomatically rather than militarily get a hold of Grey Falls further upriver. Then you have the founding of the Great Houses along with the Deliberative in the year 103 of the realm, which is basically that they would serve the same purpose, just turn everyone against each other rather than against the Empress. Yeah. The first Great Houses were named. Various others have risen and fallen at other points throughout her rule. And then a lot of the timelines kind of imply things carried on as normal, but as normal was pretty vicious for an awful lot of people. So don't think that nothing happened, but for the realm at large. it's This is not just a carry on as usual. This is arguably, especially by observers in the modern day, this is arguably the realm's golden age. Yes. They're expanding, they're getting new satrapies. There's lots and lots of political infighting, but... Another thing that the that the Empress sort of did with it, the whole thing of there's always someone else higher up the ladder before her, a lot of the infighting wasn't as visible because she was always there. And if it ever got too disruptive to the realm as a whole, she'd put the kibosh on it. Absolutely. The last notable event before her disappearance, which I don't know whether you can say this put the cat among the pigeons particularly, but certainly would have made certain ears prick up, was that the Empress announced the intent to name her successor on the thousandth year of her reign. That was set in realm year 590. First edition kind of implies that she was waiting for a time where there were enough large, powerful great houses that any announcement of a successor wouldn't just cause everyone to turn on them and wipe each other out. So they needed to be interconnected and needed to be able to survive. It was sort of an attempt to make sure that that the successor could survive to take control. One of the few ways that the Empress actually tried to make sure that the realm could survive her, probably the only way. Yeah, equally, 
every single living child of the Empress thinks that she meant them. <laughs> like, Nemon yes. does, and Nemon's arguably old enough that maybe it could have been. Venif kind of has the evidence of, from the moment Venif came onto the scene, the Empress played favourites with her. <laughs> yes. And yeah, Ragara presumably thinks it should be him, because if it isn't him, he'll kill everyone else. But yeah, that intent to name the air really did sort of set everything off. And then about 200 years later, give or take, which sounds like a long time, but dragon-blooded lifespans, even for normal dragonbloods, that's just one generation broadly. The Empress vanishes in 763. Yes. And this is kind of treated as something that's relatively okay and normal for the first few months because the Empress had been known to disappear for a few months at a time beforehand and the realm has enough institutional inertia that it can carry on for a while. And then it kind of drags on for a year, at which point they start thinking, hmm, this is getting a little odd. And no one knows where she's gone. Or at least anyone who does isn't telling. One year afterwards, they hold the Council of the Empty Throne in which the legions are divided up and Tepet Fukov is put on the throne as regent. Although he never actually sits on the throne. and There's a story that he apparently tried once and didn't get on with the idea and so has never done it again. I mean, it is a five dragon throne, and I do say a because there is another. Basically, it's an artifact throne, and it's arguably like all artifacts have some degree of intelligence to them. You see this in the Google. The throne is actually quite a clever one and quite a vicious little thing. And there is a second one in the scavenger lands, which is why I say a rather than the. Though the realm considers it to be the only one. Yes, the only the only legitimate one. Mm. And so the yeah, the Council of the Empty Throne decides that the Empress would be considered to be officially abdicated after seven years of absence. And so the clock starts ticking towards who's going to claim it once the seven years are up. Yeah. And the default timeline for Exalted is Realm Year 768, which was four years before the official abdication mm. timeline kicks in. So it gives Enough time for if you are inclined to run a, a Realm Civil War game with the current timeline, then you can absolutely do things like the prelude and getting ready and all of the rest of it. Yeah, all of the prep. And just as a little hint to keep you all tagging along until we eventually do our Realm Civil War episode, we ignore the fact that Second Edition had the madcap idea to say that she ran away to hell. <laughs> yep, <laughs> absolutely. To get married. Um, <laughs> yeah uh, with that i think that's probably it for all of the info on the realm this has been a long episode because there's been a lot to cover yeah hopefully later episodes yeah. in this season will be a lot shorter as we're covering more localized regions yeah absolutely well we, we keep saying that and they keep getting longer <laughs> So, I don't know. It's, it's but the, yes, it's it, the curse. By the time we get to the final episode, it'll be a three-day-long, unabridged podcast for talking about The Call. I joke. Yeah. We have enough to say about The Call. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. But with that, thank you ever so much for listening. If you have any questions at all, do drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review wherever you're listening. I know that Stitcher and Podchaser and Apple Podcasts all have review systems. We'd absolutely love to hear from what you think of the show there. Reviews, positive, negative. We'd love to have some feedback. Send us your angry letters about the deliberately inflammatory things I say. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But yes, do drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. And if you are just along for the law, do join us next time when we will 
be going through the great houses and their domains. We're doing one per episode, thankfully, so we're not trying to cover it all. So next next fortnight, our release schedule makes it very hard to do a next episode time frame shell. In two weeks, there we go, you can come and listen about House Kethek. Yes, the foremost military power in the realm and all of their various holdings on the Blessed Isle. We won't be covering all of their satrapies because not all of them are named and that would be a little exhaustive yeah. anyway. So come and listen to Worst Tepet in two weeks' time. <laughs> You're not biased in the least, are you? Um, and if you want to hang around for the story hook side of things, we will be discussing how to implement the realm and its various institutions and politics and factions in your games. So until then, um, thank you ever so much for cracking open the Wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny. Thank you for listening to the Wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny, an exalted podcast presented by Aramithius and Rails. Check out the show notes and story seeds from this episode at wondrousatlas.wordpress.com and if you have any questions, drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. The opening music for this podcast is Travelling to the Blessed Isle by James Semple and the closing music is Exploring Creation, also by James Semple. Both tracks are taken from the album Exalted, Dreams of the Second Age and are property of Onyx Path Publishing, used with permission. I think, I think we'll have to record the story hooks in a different day. <laughs> yes, yes, we will. I was going to make exactly the same suggestion. <laughs> have we just become a Crypto 40k cast by stealth? We're making so many references to it at the moment. It's. I think it's mostly just because there's a lot of crossover between it and 40k, Exalted <laughs> and 40k, just because both of them push to comedic extremes the tropes of their genre. <laughs>